I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. My guest today is a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University and speaks French, Spanish, Arabic, Serbo-Croatian, and yes, English. Dragana Karin is a human rights activist, researcher, and founder of the Localization Lab. It's an organization that builds bridges between developers, organizations, end users, and communities in need, resulting in more accurate and timely translations and unlocking access to the Internet for users all over the world. Karin has helped make open source technology available to underrepresented communities in 220 languages, bringing equal access to information, better representation online, and growing our collective user base. Today, she works specifically on civic tech for refugees to ensure that the design of technology can better help secure the rights of those seeking freedom. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. What was Dragana the origin of Localization Lab? How did you come to create it? Uh, well, I think you gave a really good overview. Um, it's a nonprofit that facilitates access to um, to public interest technology to communities worldwide, and it started out uh, just working with with translation with languages, um, and it's really kind of developed into a movement where um, we offer uh, user feedback, we push for co-design, we tend to work on um, so tools that are anti-censorship, anti-surveillance, um, tools for, uh, for journalists that allow uh, people to leak information to them, like global leaks and, and secure drops, as well as uh, technical education tools. Um, You're working a lot now to try to make sure that refugees or potential refugees, those who are escaping dictatorship, authoritarian regimes, that their biometric data is protected? Building on my work at Localization Lab, um, I've, I've done a lot of research in how, how refugees use technology and what opportunities and challenges this poses for them. Um, unlike 25 years ago when Bosnians and, and, and Rwandans were, were fleeing, um, when this was a refugee crisis, it's a much different world for refugees now where, well, for, for one, we get to watch, uh, we have to see uh, what's happening. We have to, we have to witness the refugee crisis happening. We no longer have an excuse to say, well, we didn't know what, what was happening. And secondly, refugees have devices on them that serve as access to, immediate access to information uh, that let them stay connected to each other and to the world. Um, these devices also act as very powerful surveillance tools um, for governments to make sure uh, to know where refugees are, are going at all times. Um, coming into Europe, many countries have this kind of policy, um, and UNHCR does as well, of taking biometric data, which means facial characteristics, iris scans, or uh, fingerprints. Coming into Europe nowadays, um, there's a policy, if you're an irregular migrant, quote-unquote, uh, your fingerprints are taken right away. They're being sent to a database in Brussels. Um, and the policy is that six years old and up, 
you, you have to give um, your, fin your fingerprints. Um, and that doesn't matter if you're from a high-risk country or not. That's the standard policy. It doesn't matter. And what's most concerning to me is that legislature says that it can be taken by force. So it, you can imagine then when we don't have even agency over our own bodies, how can we have agency over our digital selves, over our information, what, what's out there about us? So not knowing who's taking your hand and pressing it against uh, you know, a, a screen um, to take your your fingerprints has, has a really deep effect on uh, on people. It causes distrust. Also, they're fleeing conflict oftentimes. They're afraid of people who are in military outfits p pushing them for it, you know. Sure. And of course, you know, go back to language, There's, there, there are so few resources available that are in uh, Amharic or, you know, in languages spoken around West, West Africa uh, who are coming into Italy as well as um, South and Southeast Asia who are coming through Turkey into, into Greece um, as the other route. So your, your tools are intended to try to provide the linguistic support so that communication can be transparent. So often is the case if you are under arrest or if you are facing legal scrutiny, if you can't explain yourself, if you can't convey your meaning so that someone can be... Uh, on the same page, so to speak, can understand your plight, um, then that's the first trap that potential refugees fall into if they don't have a resource, either a human body or right. technological s solutions that can help convey their experience, right? So that's kind of the front lines of the refugee crisis these days. And you bring up a really important point um, that's something out of this most recent research that I've done at Berkman. Um, I've interviewed... Um, people who have arrived in the EU um, over the past four and a half years uh, about their process and what the asylum process is like, what kind of information they give away, how that makes them feel, um, do they, wh where, wh what do they think is happening with this information, right? Um, and what I found I think is really alarming that people aren't giving the most important parts of that information um, which is surviving sexual violence, uh, torture, witnessing war crimes, crimes against humanity, escaping genocide. These are the things that will make or break your asylum application. And telling a complete stranger uh, this very personal story, not knowing what's going to happen with this information, and secondly, having to tell that story over and over again uh, without an interpreter oftentimes, not knowing whether you have a right to an interpreter. Uh, Do you think the technology can give folks more confidence to tell their stories? Um, I think information would. Transparency about what's happening with this information, uh, even potential risks, what, what might happen to this information. It might get hacked. It, it, I'm not saying we should explore you know, which cloud storage we're using to, to store things, but risks need to be um, very well explained to people who, who are so vulnerable. Um, who's, who's, we're responsible for their well-being and their data, right? Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you this. Are there countries that are handling the refugees or immigrants, uh, those seeking asylum, uh, respectful of their human and technological dignity and footprint? Um, are there examples of countries that are employing those solutions right now in a way that you can share with our viewers that this is a model or at least an experimental model for how to address the problem better? 
Um, I can say U Uganda is, is an excellent example of, of a country that has, um, without, uh, without keeping out certain you know, ethnic groups, um, has largely been pretty, pretty uh, accommodating to refugees and, and, and offering both space and access uh, to NGOs and UNHCR education, which is important. Um, but as for specifically around um, uh, issues on, on digital uh, rights and data protection, I really don't know. Uh, the, we, you we, you we, had we, said to me, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we, we've seen this trend um, over the past few years, both with Australia pushing potential um, uh, asylum seekers to Manus, um, the U.S. now keeping everybody at the Mexican border um, through this kind of really weird loopholes, and the EU keeping people in Turkey and Libya without... Uh, having to fulfill their international responsibilities of processing their asylum claims. So, um, so it, it depends on how you want to address that question. What's the bigger... Um, we can go after kind of the smaller things on digital uh, rights and, and data protection, but when somebody so clearly makes the statement that um, they don't want you there, has Uganda Absolutely. Has Uganda <laughs> balanced in, in the mind of their citizens the priority of security and also wanting to be a home, a welcoming country to immigrants. Um, it's, it seems to me that that is often the conflict for the native population and among the politicians debating mm -hmm. how we actually implement immigration solutions or policy. It is that balance of wanting to give your constituents security and simultaneously wanting to be compassionate human beings. There are definitely tensions. There are definitely issues around resources, about being able to provide um, education, non-food non items, uh, water and sanitation, uh, both to local citizens and, and, and to, um, to large numbers of refugees coming both from South Sudan, from DRC, from other parts uh, of the region. One thing I wanted to get your take on was the technology companies and how they've responded to the localization project and what they're doing that is either counterproductive or potentially can be productive down the, down the line because right. they represent both the technologies but also the capital Definitely. to help. So three things come to mind. Uh, Palantir, which I'm sure you're familiar with, has recently um, joined, uh, partnered up with World Food Program. Um, Palantir, I think for everyone in the digital rights space, this causes a huge, um, it's a huge source of worry that these are extremely vulnerable groups. Um, while World Food Program is making the argument this is going to help facilitate, uh, you know, handing out resources and, and, and managing this data better, um, it's not transparent. It's not done in a very transparent way that we know people are being protected. When you are a refugee, you're not going to have a chance to speak up for yourself. So it's really important for us to, to do this kind of um, advocacy. Refugees and asylum seekers generally are trying to stay out of the, the spotlight, mm -hmm. away from legal structures, from police. They're usually um, afraid of being deported or, or being locked up. They have less rights than, than locals do, right? Um, secondly, I think... Cash programs, like World Food Programs, cash programs, uh, 
funny enough, I interviewed one person who was from Syria who, you know, in talking to me about his journey to Europe, he was explaining to me, I asked, you know, did you register as a refugee uh, in Lebanon or elsewhere? And he said, I did in Lebanon where someone told me to uh, because it was important. But uh, at one point online, I saw that they were mapping out where we're using our cash cards. Uh, and later I found the same study. And Lebanon is a small country, so you can see exactly these dots and, and movements. And you and I don't know whether this is personally identifying information for at-risk people. So, of course, uh, this person I was interviewing said, I don't have any trust in the UN. So then one of the big takeaways from this research is that all this innovation that we think that we're doing might actually be causing harm by causing distress in communities with these large structures that they rely on. And lastly, the burden of proof is always on refugees when it comes to using biometrics uh, as, as their ID, because there's no second factor authentication, right? Um, as an example, in Mauritania, a few years ago, something like 6,000 people, uh, the system malfunctioned. And so 6,000 people, you know, who are relying on these uh, agencies for shelter, food, non-food items have to wait until it starts back up again um, to, to be able to access uh, necessary uh, resources. Um, if, you know, irises change, there's, there's always these, these issues with, with biometric data, but um, at the end of the day, for you as somebody who's coming in to buy uh, water, food, whatever, and presenting your, your fingerprint, if it doesn't show up, it, the burden is on you to prove to us who you are without any paperwork. Uh. What do the companies like Apple and Google and Twitter and Facebook, what kind of support do they have so that you know, the users of those services um, can uh, try to either retain their social network from their home country uh, or at a minimum secure whatever vital information is there um, and be able to translate it into whatever language they're hopefully being adopted mm -hmm. into. Um, what, are those, what are those companies doing now, if anything, to well, help? Let me answer it this way. The best thing they can do is be transparent about what they're doing with information yeah. from these people so that they know what's happening with the information. Is it going to the U.S. government? Is it go and the, the biggest fear for, for people is, is it going to the government of my home country? Mm -hmm. Is it being sold? Um, with, I mean, people see what's going on. They read about Cambridge Analytica. They read about uh, data... Uh, Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Chinese hacking right. into Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Um, so, so they're, they're, they're aware, they but they... Yeah, so you start to wonder, what is happening with this data? Right. Do, can they actually protect it? Um, and and when, when it isn't kind of given to you, uh, this, this, when this information isn't given to you straight away you kind of have to start putting pieces like the person that I interviewed um, uh, who was talking about the, his cash sure. card. Presumably in, in some of these countries, those companies can't operate because they're suppressed, uh, the Twitters, the Googles, the Apples. Uh, so, you know, in China, certainly they're state-run or state-surveilled services where um, folks are communicating, merchandising, um, it, what has your experience been um, 
are you able to capture um, in the non-U.S. social media conglomerate? Um, are you are these folks able to capture um, their experience, their not their um, what they've shared on services outside of those? Because there must be services that are homebred in some countries sure. from which folks are escaping. You're talking about Weibo or sure. Or, or any companies that, frankly, myself and our viewers may not yeah. know exist in a place, uh, whether that is Syria or an African country yeah. or elsewhere. So uh, the research I've done is on how people coming into Europe are, are using WhatsApp or Facebook because one of our partners wanted to hire me to, to, to see what is there a need to create uh, an app for refugees to be able to communicate securely. And my, and my research kind of came to people are already communicating securely. Let me tell you, you wouldn't trust somebody online who you wouldn't trust in person, right? Another way around. So there are already Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups, um, as I'm quite sure there would be with, with Weibo and, and everything else. People know what they have in front of them, and they use it in exactly those ways. There are chat groups that, that say, um, don't trust so-and-so when you get to Izmir because they took our money and they didn't take us across or they pushed us on the boat. Or these are also pl places where people post photos of their missing loved ones to say, I haven't seen this person since then. Um, so people are just as if they would meet in person. They're meeting online for this. And one interesting bit, um, there's a how, how, how WhatsApp is being used. And I say this because of my prior research of everyone in Silicon Valley deciding I'm going to create an app that's going to solve refugees. And, uh, and, and I'm sure you've seen many of these, these articles, um, apps that don't get used, that no one's ever heard of, that, you know, in my interviews, people respond as, what? That, that really have no effect. But meanwhile, WhatsApp is being used um, by communities between Izmir and Lesbos, which is about a two-hour boat ride. People going, you know, early in the morning to avoid detection from the Coast Guard. Um, they will send their location uh, to a person, you know, using uh, WhatsApp. They'll send their location uh, to a person in Lesbos to make sure that they're getting, getting there safely. Um, and they've had this one particular group that I interviewed had zero deaths this way um, of using something that you and I use every day for means or gifts. Um, they used it as a life-saving mechanism. What is your goal for innovation in 2019? If we look back at this year and say in the refugee crisis, the localization lab accomplished, you're already in so many languages you provide the technological tools on the front and back end, but what are you hoping to achieve this year that might actually result in um, more sustainable progress for refugee communities? Um, just to be clear, we, we work with refugee communities. We also work with journalists. Yeah. We work in 220-something languages worldwide. We work with civil society, human rights groups. Um, so this is kind of a smaller part of sure. uh, everyone that we cater to. My biggest goal is to push through this message that Technology cannot be this, the solution, that there has to be a co-design of here are the issues, here are the problems, and here are, here are locally driven solutions. And in these parts is where we can use technology to expedite our communication or, or other parts. And, and what about 
what you're hoping to achieve for the journalism community that is under greater assault now mm -hmm. amidst the rise of authoritarian regimes and uh, the pressure sometimes to censor, Definitely. to harass, uh, to intimidate the forces that would assert the truth. That's a difficult one. I mean, considering what, what, like what has been happening in this past year, it's been one of the most difficult years for, for, for journalists. Um, could, you still want to trade seats? <laughs> well, considering what happened with, with Khashoggi, um, yeah. it scared people yeah. that I think people in our community are, are no longer so simply wanting to say like, well, we can just provide a secure communication tool. Um, right. In this case, you know, WhatsApp was used in, in, in certain ways. We, we need to listen intently. We need to listen very well to what are the needs of, of, of journalists, yeah. especially ones in at-risk um, communities who are living in countries um, where they're targeted directly by governments and non-state actors. Authoritarianism can be incrementally built, but it can also happen, like you said. Um, Overnight. It's not the authoritarian person that one should be afraid of. It's, it's you and me. It's us that we think that we would be, we would be the sane voice in that situation, that we would do the right thing, that uh, we would say no, that we would help. I mean, and we've seen this throughout history. I, I think you also um, enjoy historical memory. Um, I personally have a weird thing for historical memory museums, but um, you, you see this over and over where people kind of tell a story of what happened and then they were the good people. And that's just not how it happens. It's, uh, there is that voice of Karadzic or uh, insert blank here, of people who are pushing uh, xenophobic, um, straight up fascist messages, uh, supremacist messages, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic messages. Um, and that's, that's just one person. It's, uh, it's, it's the rest of the population that, um, that flips so quickly that how do you recount your own experience in, in when you said to me genocide can happen in an instant? That's exactly how, how it, it happened. Normal, 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 and, um, and all hell breaks loose. But that's, that's the case for so many people. That, um, and this is why they're left without an ID, right? That, that all of a sudden you're, you're outside of your own country, that you're a refugee, and you weren't expecting, of course you didn't plan for any of this, um, Going back to, to, to the issues around localization lab and why this organization matters so much to me um, is another part of this is language preservation. That with genocide you have, I mean, by definition, in part or, or in whole, um, erase, who erasing an entire group of people by race, ethnicity, um, uh, nationality, and a fourth one. It's been a long time since uh, yeah. human rights class, sorry. But there's this fear that's always with you that it, it, not only will this be erased, but, but any, any kind of evidence that we were here is going to be erased. Um, and that's language, that's art, that's buildings, that's architecture. Um, and for a lot of people, 
not just refugees that we work with, with ind indigenous groups that we work with, um, they find it so important to, to be represented, to have, uh, to have their own culture um, live on in, in, in a certain way. I don't know if you saw the Super Bowl ad. I think it was my favorite from this past year in, a, in years that have been declining in Super Bowl ad quality. But it was a Google Pepsi ad. commercial? Well, I think there was a good Pepsi one this past year. But there, the, the top one, in my estimation, was a Google ad. Uh, and it was prefacing it with, you know, of course, there's, there's horror in the world. But the inspiring, uh, the inspiring notion that one of the most searched um, translatable terms is uh, how are you doing um, um, or just a hello or a greeting but it was really an inspiring commercial that really it, it emphasized what you do and the idea that people want to be able to um, convey an introduction uh, hopefully you know courteously a courteous introduction and question how are you how are you today and it was the ad was basically in motion, all of these people asking that question. Um, that, to me, is, is the essence of what you're doing. Uh, how can Google and, and those companies be listening better mm -hmm. to people who are actually in dire need of that communication? Work with us. Yeah. Work with us. Give us digital and physical spaces for co-design because mistakes are made. This is proprietary software. If, if we're talking about uh, public interest stuff, we should be better. We're supposed to be doing better. We're supposed to be addressing, uh, we're supposed to be coming from a no harm principle, right? Co-design and participatory design is offering some economic opportunities. It's offering uh, usability and security issues being addressed. It's offering dignity. It's offering opportunities for people. So stop creating solutions for us. Um, work with our organization and our partners um, so we can create solutions together. Thank you, Jagdana. Thank you so much. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at OpenMindTV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.